Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this 10th episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar interview with James Grant. Jim is the editor, founding editor, of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a periodical that is read by the most influential people on Wall Street. Jim also brings a fabulous sense of history to his analysis of current developments. He's authored numerous books about historically interesting times in financial markets and economic activity, one of my favorites of which is Mr. Market Miscalculates. It's a collection of essays from Grant's Interest Rate Observer about how the market sometimes deviates from its supposed efficient uh, proper pricing. So in this time of unprecedented Federal Reserve activity, monetary debasement, and unprecedented budget deficits, I could think of no one better to discuss the economy and financial markets than Jim Grant. Okay, uh, well, thank you all for uh, taking the time to join us today. Uh, I am thrilled to have with us here today uh, Jim Grant, who obviously needs no introduction. Um, what I'm going to do is just do a quick recap, if you will, uh, of where we are in terms of this webinar series and how we got here. Uh, I think that would be helpful uh, for everyone to know. So, like I said, today we're going to be uh, discussing the economy, the Federal Reserve. Uh, I suspect, although uh, I, I could be surprised uh, that Jim may even touch on the topic of gold, uh, possibly. Um, but a quick review, this is a series that's really intended to help me illustrate uh, the messages of my forthcoming book. And so if you see any value in these webinars, uh, I'd really appreciate the support. And, uh, have you purchased the book? It's available for pre-order now on Amazon and any place else. Uh, again, think for yourself. That's my Twitter handle. Um, last week we had uh, Kishore Mabubani talking about the U.S.-China rivalry. There's a replay available. Uh, the week before we had uh, Tom Petrie talking about oil and oil cycles uh, and what happened in the paper versus physical markets and what that may portend for what's happening in the global economy. Uh, before that, we had General Lori Robinson. Uh, General Robinson, as many of you know, was the uh, four-star Air Force General who was the commander of NORAD, the most senior female in the U.S. military ever. Uh, again, a replay available. And then we ha started the series with Dr. Ali Khan, who had written the book, The Next Pandemic, uh, talked about public health and, and some of the questions on our minds as we entered this pandemic that was earlier in the process of this pandemic. Uh, so that's, the, uh, that's a little recap. Again, all replays are available. All links are available to the replays through my website, which is just my last name, www.mansharamani.com. And so I am absolutely thrilled to have uh, Jim with us here today. Uh, Jim is a dear friend. I've known him for a little over 10 years. We were reminiscing uh, earlier as we got started uh, here right before everyone signed on that Jim first came to my class in New Haven uh, on financial bubbles that I was teaching at Yale and served as a judge for the final projects about the next potential bubble. Um, and so uh, I've known Jim for a little over 11 years now. Uh, he's read manuscripts for me and kindly given me comments. Uh, he endorsed uh, my first book, uh, the second edition of which he wrote the foreword for. Uh, and here he is supporting me for the third book in this webinar series. Uh, for those that haven't read uh, his, his uh his publication, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I would highly encourage a subscription. Uh, it is a really worthwhile read. In fact, I was showing Jim, I'm old school. I actually keep the hard copies here, Jim. Look at that, huh? Recycling is not part of my purview. I'm going to keep them. <laughs> so uh, I do, there is an app also. So there's electronic versions. Jim has entered the, uh, the 21st century in that regard. Um, but with that said, uh, I want to thank you, Jim, for taking the time to come and spend some time with me and the, uh, the audience here. Well, it is my pleasure, Vikram. So, uh, so, Jim, I think we'll start with what is on the minds of a lot of people, is on the minds of the most recent Economist cover story, is what is going on? The market is way up. The economy feels like it's sputtering, if not in reverse, in a meaningful way in certain sectors. Uh, 
help us connect the dots between what's happening on Wall Street and what's happening on Main Street? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Mr. Market is um, a very funny fellow, but uh, sometimes uh, he will uh, discount the future as if he had seen the coming attractions. Other times he can't seem to look beyond his nose. And um, so, uh, you know, what about now when uh, the market is uh, knocking on the door of highs, even as everything else seemingly is going the other way? And uh, I have one theory, which is uh, uh, that there are two zeros in our lives. One is the zero percent interest rates that the Federal Reserve is now sponsoring, especially at the very short end of the yield curve, meaning the federal funds rate. And the other zero is the cost of trading stocks. And since last uh, last fall, uh, you can uh, speculate for nothing. And with the advent of uh, digital technology, you can buy uh, very small shares of shares. You can buy, uh, you know, uh, spend five bucks and get uh, a minority interest in a minority interest of Tesla. And people are doing, I, th I think the absence of sports betting, the uh, superabundance of leisure, the uh, zero cost of speculation, and the very easy credit conditions in the financial markets have uh, combined to, uh, to at least incite some portion of this great upswoosh yeah. in equities. Uh, you know, you, I, I long ago stopped being dogmatic about uh, uh, financial things. I, I, well, I, I retained some dogmatism in some topics. Maybe. Sometimes. But, uh, as for uh, the future of the stock market, I realized I'm one of the leading authorities in not knowing what it is. Yeah, sure. But I, I, I do uh, think, as so many of us, I think, have scratched our heads thinking about uh, the, uh, the seeming non sequitur of the vibrancy of speculation and, on the one hand, and uh, the uh, the terrible distress of so many of our fellow Americans on the other. You know, Warren Buffett, uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, said he found nothing to buy. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a whole host of young speculators who find nothing to sell. <laughs> you have to take your pick, Victor. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, Jim, talk to, I mean, I read the article in this week's issue um, where you brought up uh, Robinhood. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that. How does that come into play? Specifically, you were talking about Warren Buffett and airlines, and then Robinhood and airlines, uh, or at least as tracked through that service you were. Well, about. yes, you can go on the uh, Robinhood makes available a fascinating app. I got this information from uh, my friend Jim Bianco, and you can go and find the ticket. You type in a ticker, and uh, Robinhood will tell you the number of accounts that own that particular stock. And what you saw when you typed in the, uh, the ticker JET, which is the ETF for airlines, you found a, a terrific upsurge in accounts owning JET the very time that Buffett was selling out his airline positions. And you know, there's, there's, there's two sides to a pancake, of course, and there's a, uh, there is a, a, a bull story on the airlines uh, that says, you know, if, you, if you're short the airlines or don't own them, you are betting against human ingenuity. You are betting against uh, the drive for a vaccine. Every smart person you know, either full-time or secretly at night, is on the hunt for the magic. Can you imagine the glory that accrues to the finder, the inventor of the new vaccine? I mean, of course, there will be one. So who wants to bet against that? You want to bet against the mass brain power of the human race. It's a very formidable <laughs> wager to take on. So I don't know. I'm, I, I'm just, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying nothing about outcomes. All I'm doing is observing. <laughs> All right. I got gotcha. you. Gotcha. Well, Jim, since we're on the topic of pandemics, um, roughly a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago, we had the, the Spanish flu, the big pandemic that everyone likes to reference. But roughly 100 years ago, we also had a depression that you referenced. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Uh, the, the parallels, insofar as you see any, uh, and what, may, what insights we may take from, from that forgotten depression. Yes, yeah. Well, the, the, the title of the book to which you kindly allude is The Forgotten Depression, which despite my every effort, remains rather obscure in the mind. <laughs> 
of the American public. Um, I must talk to the Simon and Schuster people about that. But um, the depression that uh, we both are talking about uh, began in 1920, and uh, it was a it was a bear. I mean, the stocks were down 45 percent or so. Commodities ditto. Unemployment was not then measured, but was certainly in the teens. Corporate profits down by one measure, 90 percent, nine oh percent. Uh, privation in the absence of uh, social safety net uh, was widespread, uh, and on and on. It was a, it was not a recession, but a depression. In fact, it, uh, I can confidently characterize it as a depression because there was a, uh, a hit tune written about it, and you don't write songs about recessions. <laughs> so um, anyway, so what is, so what 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 is um, notable about this episode in our cyclical history is its brevity. Uh, as severe as it was, it was over and done with in 18 months, notwithstanding, or perhaps because of the, uh, of the uh, policy response to it. Now, what did the government do? This was in the era of uh, Woodrow Wilson had just left office, Warren G. Harding had entered it. And the, uh, you know, the, uh, the doctrines of the times were for, uh, you know, a balanced budget or a surplus and, uh, and uh, a real interest rates of, uh, of a considerable number of, of percentage points. So when the government uh, belatedly came to realize it had a depression on its hand, what it did was nothing. Sensibly, I mean, the budget remained in balance. The Harding program was for a fiscal economy. And uh, there was a Bureau of the Budget set up to do just that, to cut out unnecessary spending and to roll back wartime regulations. First World War had ended a couple of years earlier. And what the Fed did was to tighten credit, to uh, discourage gold outflows. So you had a, you had a terrific credit contraction. Um, but uh, because wages were flexible to the downside, as prices fell, wages likewise declined and levels of profitability corporate were reestablished at lower levels of activity and lower levels of prices and wages. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, also uh, the price mechanism was in, uh, you know, was working without uh, interference and the world came to see just how cheap were American assets. So gold flowed into this country sure. to avail itself of opportunities. Um, inventories had been run down. They were, brought back up again, and there was a great whoosh to the upside in activity. And as I say, over and done with in 18 months. Now compare and contrast the depression that followed in 10 years. And what was notable about that one was the, uh, uh, the industrial states of the day getting together, this is 1930, and saying, yeah, this time we are not going to cut wages. Yep. We are not going to make the burden of this depression fall upon the little guy. And they did not cut wages, Henry Ford in the vanguard. But because wages did not fall, but prices did, corporate profits collapsed. And what followed at length was mass unemployment. Now, this is a, a controversial doctrine. I'm not doing it justice in, in this discussion. But uh, uh, so, you know, this depression, of course, is, is out of memory. But it's as if, Vikram, our policymakers today were, in fact, fully briefed on and had resolved to do everything the opposite, <laughs> right? Because, because today, not yeah. only are wages uh, rather sticky to the downside, but also the government is subsidizing the people at levels of income for not a few million Americans. It's, it's greater sure. in lockdown than it had been in okay. nine to five life. Sure. So, so, so Jim, I was going to say, so, in between the forgotten and the remembered depressions, there was a wonderful time. There was an absolutely wonderful, the roaring 20s, right? I mean, sort of, do you think they were related? The fact that one led to the other, meaning you let the markets clear, let it happen really quickly in the 1920 timeframe, such that people can then go forth and have an economic resurgence? I think so. I think that was a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we, we seem to be in a regime of, uh, of, of uh, ever greater, more frequent, and more radical intervention to, uh, uh, to uh, prevent or to edit 
the movement of prices is set by a more forthright name. All this is called price control. Yeah. So speaking of price control, Jim, I'm jumping a little bit here, but you know, the topic of inflation and whether we measure it correctly or not, measurement issues aside, seems to be uh, one that people are spending some time worrying over, yet the evidence so far has been that there are not signs of inflation. Um, thoughts on the current environment, inflation, deflation, uh, or deflation, and whether or not we'll see inflation perhaps is a better way to think of it. But, uh, but connect the dots there. I mean, you're talking about prices and sticky prices and sort of price management. Um, you know, what's going on today? Well, only, only consider the, the complexity of the situation we are against. We have a collapse in demand. We are working through a kind of a controlled experiment worldwide in whether commerce works without revenue. So far, the results are not encouraging, right? Yeah. So, so there's a collapse in demand, but there is likewise a collapse in supply owing to the various lockdowns. So the, uh, you know, the, the black swan on this was not the pandemic. We have had pandemics. The black swan was the lockdown. Um, so collapse in demand, reciprocal breakdown in supply and in supply chains, if you get that. We have uh, an upsurge in... Um, in, in fiscal spending, and we have a heretofore unimagined increase in central bank credit creation. Over the past three months, at an annual rate, the Fed is expanding its earning assets uh, in excess of 500%. This is a 500% annual run rate. Uh, the broadest measure of money supply, M3, is growing uh, in excess of 20%, the fastest rate by far in peacetime. You know, and, these, and these data are, of course, striking and, in fact, stunning. But the world has been desensitized to them through the, the uh, uh, little boys like myself having cried wolf 10 years ago on inflation. So, uh, but here's, you know, so, so uh, I have come to see through my own trial and error just how ill-advised it is to dogmatize about the financial future. I leave that to younger, more self-confident people. But what we can do is to observe the way the present is handicapping the future, right? So what we have, from behind me, you'll notice in my curated book collection, the background, you'll see a title, uh, perhaps you can imagine one of the history of interest rates by Sidney Homer. Now that particular tome, I will not read to you on the air because uh, we haven't really got time, but it will show you that these are the lowest rates in 4,000 years. Yep. You know, uh, I'm not sure what Bloomberg's latest tally is, but Bloomberg does, every day does a tally of the number of trillions of dollars of securities priced to yield less than nothing. Yep. So think of the imputed inflation forecast in that particular choice of asset. People are saying, right, not only will the value of money not diminish, but also it will certainly increase over the course of three, five, ten, whatever duration of the security is. We've got $10 trillion worth in the last recent count. And um, in this country, we have a 10-year treasury at 60 basis points, plus or minus. Uh, what's the run rate of inflation? I don't know. Is it nothing? Is it two? We don't, we don't know, really, because of the artificialities of this moment. But if it were two, which is, has been for the past 10 years, we're looking at it substantially negative rate of return on that piece of paper, of which there are many, and which many more will be issued. The Fed uh, has the most wondrous ways of materializing dollar bills. You know how they do it, Vikram? Push a button. Yeah, they hit a keypad. <laughs> and so, so the, the imputed view, uh, the views that I think are embedded in these facts is A, a terrific confidence in the judgment and the capacity of the central bankers to, uh, uh, in the certainty of the death and decomposition of inflation. And uh, I am not so certain about either one. In fact, with respect to the judgment and capacity of our central bankers, I think it's not much. I think their intentions are honorable, their concerns about humanity are laudable, but I don't think they know what they do. Sure. Uh you say sure. Well, I understand. I understand that's your view. Yes, sure. At <laughs> <laughs> last, I found somebody to agree with me. Is that true? Yeah, I do actually tend to agree with you. Um, so, 
That's interesting because the magnitude of debt, you would imagine, becomes problematic at some level. Tell us when or what the limits might be, either from the perspective of debt volumes, if you will, issued by our wonderful government, or on the flip side, the deficit magnitude. Um, you know, 20% of GDP government budget deficits, when I study the emerging markets, that was a basket case that was about to fall apart. Yet here we find ourselves in our lovely country uh, approaching that, if not higher, budget deficits. Isn't it, isn't it great to be among the nobility of the first market, first world? I'm so proud of myself for living here. Yeah. So, but surely there's got to be a limit, right? I mean, or am I wrong? Well, um, I, I would think there is. You know, last fall, September, early September, there was a uh, it was kind of a little uh, tempest in the repo market. The repo market is this recondite branch of government finance. In it, you finance government securities uh, for, um, Overnight. for their find a permanent home. Sure. And, um, and suddenly, without a warning, unscripted, the repo rate launches from one and a half, two percent level where it had been to uh, eight. Nine, I think it touched for a moment at ten percent intraday, and uh, it poses several questions. One, why did it get there? Uh, two, um, might it have been a so-called market failure? Or three, was it perhaps an expression, this rate expression of of a greater uh, volume of supply than was uh, than demand warranted? Um, so more supply than demand. So I, I think that even then, even you know, five months or whatever before the virus, for the bug bit, there was the uh, at least the, the suggestion, the hint in the government securities markets that su the supply was become over a little bit overwhelming. Now, uh, as a asterisk footnote to that, um, uh, the. Uh, the big banks, which in prior cycles would have come in to lend at rates much below 9%, were prevented from doing that by the, uh, the various regulations that have swarmed in on them after the last crisis of 2008 and 9. So, uh, you know, Dodd-Frank and the Basel 1, 2, and 3, all these things um, have uh, kind of immobilized immense volumes of liquidity inside the banks in the name of the safekeeping of the banks. There was a, a Nordic banker many years ago who said, you know, it can't just be the purpose of banking is to keep banks from going bankrupt. <laughs> oh, yeah, it can. Yeah, that's, yeah, it can. <laughs> and in the aftermath of the crisis of 2008, it was. Yeah. So you asked, uh, like 20 minutes ago, Victor, you asked about whether there's any limit uh, to our debts, and uh, let me let me give you the contrary. Let me give me let me give you the answer. Is no, there's no limit. Okay, so in the Reagan administration, two terms of the Reagan administration, uh, the the public debt tripled, and bond yields were sawed in half. Mm -hmm. Interest rates have been falling for let's see, what's the is this this year 2020? I think it is for 39 years. That's been the trend tendency of interest rates, you know, with, of course, with periodic counter trend uh, movements, but uh, the, the, the trend in place for 39 years has been rates declining in the face of an immense expansion of public debt. It took uh, like two, uh, it's okay, it took how many years to get to 1789 to 1981 was the span of years to get to the first trillion of public debt. We added the last trillion in about 15 minutes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But is anybody worried? Uh, well, whether people are worried, but they're not worried in the bond market. Yeah. They're not worried in the bond market, which is intriguing, is it not? Yeah. And Jim, does this mean that rates can never rise again? Right? I mean, look, think about the what happens to the US government budget if rates were at three or four or five or six percent even. Well, just I mean, because something is inexpedient doesn't mean it's impossible. Fine. <laughs> I understand. I mean, yeah, people people do say that. People do say, well, they can't, they can't work because if they did, look what would happen. Yeah, a lot of bad things happen. Yep. Um, although so, I, 
Yeah, but, but, but in the absence of rates of any positive integer, there's no check, right? There's no, there's no, there's no rationing. Yeah. So prices are, are the market's way of rationing scarce resources. Mm-hmm. So are we meant to believe there's no more scarcity in the world? Are we meant to believe that, that there's no scarcity in credit because the central banks can materialize it? If that's, if that's the proposition, well, that's good to know, right? Why didn't we learn that about three millennia ago? Think how much, think how much richer we'd be. <laughs> well, you know, it, it leads very naturally to the, to the question I received from like 500 people over email here, which is, please ask Jim about modern monetary theory. Ah, well, um, this is one of the, the great propositions. Of, you know, there's, a, there's a, an economist named Abba Lerner, who, you know, whose dates were about, I don't know, about 19... 10 to 1980 or something. He was a, uh, a Brit, grew up in the East End of London. Um, and he was always an independent and radical minded guy. The FBI was tracking him in this country in the 40s and the 50s for uh, subversive thoughts. And he was a, I think, uh, but he, he, was, um, he wrote, a, he wrote a, um, an essay that's accessible online that is so uh, lucid and so uh, persuasive. It's called, um, a functional finance. And here it is in a nutshell. He says that there's no such thing as sound finance. So you can put aside all your prejudices about, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the public debt and the public credit. There is no such thing. There's, a, there's only functionality. Does it work? Does it work? And it works if there is no inflation at the checkout counter. You didn't even consider asset and price inflation. So Lerner says that what we do is that uh, we... Uh, uh, we uh, lend and we borrow. The public will issue public debt and we'll spend that. And the central banks will accommodate it until such time as their inflation is the actual CPI inflation. And when that inflation, if it does materialize, when it comes, we will tax it away. We will tax away that inflation by, by taking away the marginal spending power of the people who are caused inflation. That's his view. And Keynes read this, and he was impressed as am I by its lucidity. But he said, "God help us, they try it." <laughs> now, the, so the doctrine. So, so Lerner said there was, there was one codicil, and that codicil was, "If you owe your debt domestically, you can do this." But of course, the United States has substantial uh, creditors abroad. But never mind that for the time being. But I think what is most uh, notable about this MMT idea is the fact that it is in fact being implemented. Listen to Donald Trump. He says, uh, there's no inflation. Let us proceed. Let's spend. And how about negative rates, he says. Right? So, so this Republican administration is, in fact, retailing MMT. And it's, like the, you know, it's like the character one of Moliere's plays who says, uh, who was astonished to discover that he'd been speaking prose all of his life. And he hadn't even known it. So the, the Republicans are implementing MMT, and they don't even know it. Yep. yep. Yeah, no, it's, it sure appears to be that way. Um, Jim, when we, we talk about the printing presses, um, we talk about potentially, one would think, the more dollars we print, that each dollar would be worth less. Seemingly logical proposition, at least in my head. And yet, what we've seen is, in this world, effectively a currency war where it's a race to the bottom. As one central bank tries to hit two buttons faster than the other one hitting one button to print. I can print faster. I can print even faster. Uh, how does this play out? I mean, right now we've seen dollar strength, uh, which could be indicating something, um, should perhaps create issues elsewhere, maybe in the emerging markets or, or what have you. Uh, but also it results in all sorts of confusing yeah. dynamics. Well, this is one of these 3D problems. This is like, you know, uh, uh, multi-dimensional chess or something. So you imagine uh, the Fed creating dollars uh, and you imagine the plight of those abroad who had borrowed dollars earlier. Uh, they need dollars if they intend not to go bankrupt to service their debts. So they bid up for dollars. Uh, so all these, these are different forces playing on the dollar exchange rate the dollar exchange rate against other paper currencies, right? So we can say the dollar is the cleanest, dirty shirt in the wash. We can say that the dollar is strong against this one or that one. But there is one 
another marker, which is it strong, is it strong against the precious metals, which uh, you know cannot be so easily fit, um, manufactured as can paper currencies. So you know the the uh, the gold price is now it's still it's uh, you know it's it's still below the highs of 2011, but it's now a 1700 number rather than a 1200 number. And uh, I think that to me is the is the true marker. Uh, it's not a it's not a perfect marker because it, it, all sorts of things go into the determination of the price of uh, an asset, not just uh, what I think it should be, which is one of the <laughs> one of the things I've learned over the course of my journalistic career. It's a very discouraging realization. <laughs> Well, Jim, you know, I remember one of our first conversations I had asked you, this is probably 2008 or nine, I asked you about how should I think about gold? How should I think about it? And I remember you describing it, and it's still, it's stuck with me, which is, Vikram, gold is neither an inflation hedge or deflation hedge. Think of it as one divided by confidence in central banks. And so if your confidence in central, or, or sorry, it's a proxy on central bank confidence. If you have yeah, right. all confidence. Reciprocal, yeah, right. Perfect. Do you still believe that? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, so what do we know about the confidence in uh, Jerome Powell? Uh, we know that according to Gallup, which surveyed <laughs> some thousands of people, that the confidence is at a 15-year high in the ability and the determination of Jay, uh, Jay Powell to do right by the economy, 15-year high. So, uh, I don't know, that's what's one reading, but... Um, uh, uh, sorry, Victor. Yeah, no, so it's one by confidence. So I, I think I asked you this once when I was moderating a panel and uh, you were one of my panelists at an event down in Texas, but at the time you dismissed it saying you'd stick with the real stuff. But what about the digital version of this precious metal? Uh, something some people refer to as Bitcoin. Yeah, well, it is a taste. Um, I don't happen to have acquired it yet, but uh, um, I, I look, uh, I mean, here is my dilemma with Bitcoin. Now, truth be told, Bikram, I had to have help to log on to this wonderful webcast this morning. Yeah, that's true. I am 73 and 7 eighths, and I, yeah, I had to have help. Um, and here's, here's something else. I have some gold and some safe deposit boxes in a place that I'm not going to tell you unless we were, you know, unless there were fewer than 500 people on this. Sure. And uh, you know, I lost the keys to those safe deposit boxes. And I went into uh, a bank, we'll call it a bank, and they were so nice. And we went downstairs to the vaults, and the guy had a drill, and I produced a driver's license, and whew, the gold was still there. Perfect. I would be not the first, not the second. Or the nth, but the nth plus one to have my Bitcoin hacked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, part of the, uh, to me, gold is, is your bottom dollar. It's not, you know, it, to be sure, it is, it is a fetish for some. I like to think that with me, it's not a fetish, but it is yeah. um, a store of value that will be there to uh, um, either when, um, uh, there's not much else going on in the world or when there is a lot going on and things are cheap. Yep. Yep. Never starved with gold. I, so I, that, that, those are my reasons for ha holding the thing itself. I own gold equities as well, gold mining equities, but the thing yep. itself I think is a very important part of the, or at least to say I'm starting more intelligent of this complete breakfast, of this complete, of this complete portfolio. Sure. So Jim, let's talk about uh, paper versus physical. Since you raised the topic of the thing itself, uh, we saw recently in the oil markets, uh, you know, a, a person, entity was caught with too much uh, paper oil and needed to dispose of it, resulting in paper prices plunging. Uh, is it conceivable that something similar transpires in the gold markets where there is a lot of paper gold, but the underlying is not adequate to support the paper. And so there ends up being a squeeze where something like a paper gold instrument could very well, very well fall while the physical price rises. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, there has been a, a great uh, controversy in the inside baseball world of gold over the years about uh, the, uh, uh, the disparity and the uh, distortions uh, attended upon this big market, not only in gold futures, but also in gold lending. 
uh, central banks would lend their gold for sale and people would sell it and uh, do some of the proceeds and then have to buy anyway so so there's there within the the great overarching market of gold there is in that thing a speculative branch that has to do with futures trading with lending and borrowing the bullion yeah. and uh the, the and and when the when the trend in the gold price is down, there's a lot of short selling, uh, trend following people, short selling the paper, and uh, conspiracy talk among the gold bugs. And then when the trend reverses and it goes back up again, there's a lot of speculative buying of gold in the futures market. But the, the disparity recently between the futures price and the cash price has been very wide. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the what the long term significance of, that, of this is for the holder of gold who is holding it as his or her bottom dollar. I think the consequence, the, the significance, is almost nil. Yeah. But for those who whose business it is to speculate in gold or to trade it day by day, these the consequences of this vast disparity yeah. between the spot is of course much bigger. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thoughts on silver? That was one of the questions someone sent me. Yeah, I think, uh, I think silver is going to come into its own. But there's a uh, there's a, a, a wonderful book that you can still get. I think we use book sites called um, uh, Wooden Nickels by William F. Rickenbacker. It came out in the, uh, in the early '60s. It was about the disappearance of silver coins as a telltale sign of the coming depreciation and devaluation of the dollar. And you know, silver is uh, they say the poor man's gold. It has an industrial component as well as a monetary one. So it's much more volatile than gold. It's much more fun to trade for that reason. There is a, um, uh, God, I'm drawing a blank on the name of a silver stock that I, you know what, I'm not even, now this name comes to you, I'm not, I'm not even going to mention it. Can email it. <laughs> but there, yeah, uh, but there is, um, I, th I think silver is going to uh, uh, do very well as gold does very well. There's a, there's a, um, uh, another book called by uh, uh, Roy Jastrom called The Golden Constant. And it's a history of the gold market and of the price of gold. I think I have it here somewhere. I only, I only see your books there, Victor. Yeah, well, that's the purpose of this uh, webinar here. We can <laughs> zoom in on my books. But, <laughs> we're but, uh, but yes, Roy Jastrom Golden also Constant. Wrote a book called uh, Silver called it the, uh, the Restless Metal. Yep. And restless is not the word for it. It yeah. is a highly volatile essence, sure. and uh, so if you want to speculate on monetary debasement, silver is the one for you. Is much more oof in it. Yeah. Got it. Um, okay, so let me, Jim. Those are. I mean, I still have plenty of questions, but I'm seeing the question tab here go uh, very rapidly up uh, in terms of number of questions. Uh, so let's turn to some of the uh, audience questions that are coming in. Uh, one of the first ones here is the Fed. Uh, the Fed is allowed to lend, uh, but the Fed is not allowed to spend. Um, if by chance that were changed, is there a risk of hyperinflation? Or could that be the catalyst to generating hyperinflation when someone is allowed to print money and spend it? So, you know, related to another question is, are there limits to the printing? Yeah. Well, the answer to that question is very easy. It's yes. That is the, the essence of hyperinflation. Uh, it goes back to uh, the Continentals and, uh, during the Revolutionary War. They, 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 they struck them off the press. They spent them, and that was uh, that was big inflation. I'm sure there's hyperinflation as the technicians would define it, but it was certainly a, yeah. a robust inflation. And uh, yeah. similarly with the later stages of the depreciation of the French currency during the French Revolution. Well, if you look yeah, even at the... So if you look at the more recent events, right? I mean, Zimbabwe. In fact, I was over in Harare and I was I met with people at the central bank. And, you know, one of them said what I feel, still think is a stunning statement. They said, I said, you know, so you guys realized there was inflation and you still printed the money. Why? And they said, we printed the money because we needed the money. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> that's one explanation. But yeah, there's a, there, was a, there was a governor of the Reserve Bank in Zimbabwe not so many years ago who... Uh, uh, gave an interview, and his interview took the form of a lamentation on don't they realize, he's talking about the, the Fed, don't they realize doing the same thing we are? 
We're forgetting lovely, the guy's name, but it was lovely to be in this country. <laughs> lovely they, to be. We were, in fact, doing the same thing they were because we were neutralizing the newly created dollars in the reserve accounts of the commercial banks. Something I came to realize rather late in the game, but uh, these dollars were on ice, so to speak. They were not functional gotcha. or um, almost theatrical. Yep. Um, question about the reserve currency status uh, of the United States. Don't these rules that you uh, or that we all sort of think uh, would and should apply, uh, gravity in terms of the volume of debt, et cetera, um, do they not apply to us because we are the de facto global reserve currency and there are no alternatives? Well, it seems that way. It seems as if there were none. And uh, in support of the proposition that the reserve currency is virtually a limitless and permanent franchise, uh, Britain was the owner of that franchise. Uh, and you could see it in retrospect, you can see it in retrospect that the British pound peaked as a currency in the August, month of August 1914. As soon as the war began, that was the end of the uh, dominance of Britain as a, as a financial center and the end of pound sterling as the one and only reserve currency. That was the end. However, uh, the pound lingered as one of the reserve currencies into the 1950s, 19th, early into the 60s too. So there's, there's, there is a deep element uh, of habit in, in uh, monetary, uh, the, the habit infuses our choice of, of monetary units. You know, we, we, uh, we transact in the currencies that are comfortable, we have transacted in the dollars that is not only the world's uh, store of value, uh, but it's also the, uh, the great invoicing currency. And so, you know, so this, 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 this franchise is in fact not permanent. We can lose it and we, we ought to lose it uh, if you like, I'll explain that. We ought to lose it, but uh, but it'll take some doing to lose. You know, Adam Smith has this wonderful line about uh, he tried in some calamity howler of the 18th century. He said, you know, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of ruin in the in a country. He said, don't be too embarrassed. There's a lot of ruin in a country, and there is a great deal of ruin in a reserve currency. So nothing's going to happen overnight. And I say we, sh we ought to lose it because the reserve currency al allows us all sorts of latitude that we perhaps ought not to take. It has allowed us to, to run these immense trade deficits, persistent trade deficits. Why? Because people are happy to take our currency and, and to uh, buy our securities with it. If they, so, the, so the government's debt gets bigger, our manufacturing base gets hollowed out. So the, the, the gift of the reserve currency, to my mind, is rather a poison chalice. Yep, no, I, I do see that. Uh, here's another question that sort of comes at similar topics here, but um, love to get Jim's thoughts on how to reconcile post-pandemic deglobalization, which was perhaps already underway with, uh, you know, debt levels, which have obviously risen because of the pandemic and, you know, central banking activity. What part of this was already underway and we're just accelerating the sort of path to demise, if you will? Yeah. Well, I would say that the globalization ought to be distinguished from trade. I think uh, trade is uh, yeah. as ingrained in the human animal as is appropriation and war and baseball and other such basic things. Um, but um, uh, globalization is, uh, is uh, partially ideology. You, know, it's a, uh, you uh, must establish a, a supply chain in China because China is going to be the next thing, and, uh, and uh, you know, like that. So that, so the, um, uh, that's my phone. Oh, I was going to say, it sounds. <laughs> Sorry about this. Is, this comes from uh, being locked down. Okay. Um, All right. But but the, you know the, the people. Where's the uh, the village in Switzerland that the uh, that we all meet? Uh, that uh, the big shots meet in the wintertime. What's that? Refresh my memory on Sorry, say that again, Jim. The Swiss town in which the big shots meet to discuss global affairs. What's the, uh, uh, anyway, Davos. everyone, Davos, right, of course. But the, 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 uh, the, the, the globalization as an ideology is, 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 you know, it's like the Davos man, right? We, we are from nowhere, we uh, tear down national boundary, blah, blah, blah. I think that is ending or over. Yep. Uh, trade will continue, 
but uh, there is, I think, going to continue movement from just in time to just in case. Right. We, so the precautionary supply chain, rather than the most efficient one, is going to come into uh, uh, the forefront. Maybe it's there already. Yeah. And I, so what all this might all this might mean is is a, is a, a tendency uh, towards weaker productivity growth and perhaps more inflation. You think of, so what is responsible for the secular decline in inflation? Is it not the international arbitrage of wages? Is it not the uh, the perfection of supply chains? And uh, so if that, if, that, if that is if that trend is uh, detrending, we have to think mm-hmm. through a lot of other things. Relating to that, what about technology? I mean, are you a believer that technology will be a constant deflationary force here and that actually deglobalization, globalization, but in fact, technology played a pretty big role too? It's good. And that uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos is, uh, I'm not sure how much of uh, QE he has neutralized, but uh, some portion of it. Yeah. Uh, so we have Al, we have Jeff Bezos. Uh, I uh, I can't uh, deconstruct exactly the contribution of technology to our uh, blessed uh, stability of prices, but certainly it's been substantial. But you know, this uh, uh, technology has been on a roll for generations, and not merely for uh, since the dawn of Silicon Valley. Um, the uh, the technologies uh, that advanced in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s were substantial as well, and yet uh, the 70s gave rise to uh, uh, double-digit inflation. So I, I think that uh, that if policymakers set their minds to it, they can at least temporarily surmount the uh, the constructive deflationary forces of technology through rampant and irresponsible fiscal and monetary policies. Mm-hmm. Um- separate question that I'm curious to hear how you'll react to, which is without an education system that's open, be it K through 12, high school or post college, hard to have an economy without an education system. Parents stuck at home, you know, uh, self-educating their children, what have you, homeschooling, uh, impact on the economy. Could you have an economy without an education system that's open? No, nor without revenue. Um, we have uh, our, our eldest is the now the mother of four, and she and her husband and their four kids are self isolating outside of Alexandria, Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia. And when I hear people talk about uh, the need to uh, stay safe and uh, don't go outside, the other playgrounds are locked. Was the damage done to? Uh, Family life through sheer cabin fever. I think our, our grandchildren, our kids are getting along fine, but uh, my goodness, I, I think the, um, uh, the costs uh, to uh, child development and to parental sanity, which is a, certainly runs in parallel with child <laughs> education, these costs are, are, are formidable and ought to be reckoned in the, in the calculations too. Yeah. Um. This is a, uh, a really interesting question, Jim. Unemployment, um, high, spiked up very high, yet we know because of what we've seen in some of the data with the people programs providing at least temporary uh, employment, if you will, uh, through these paycheck protection programs, that unemployment is likely to spike yet higher when these programs run off. Uh, any sense as to the potential magnitude of where we could go with unemployment? I just think catastrophic is the concept, but as to numbers, who knows? What do they say? So, so the printed number is 14%. The uh, number except for this and that consideration of temporary work would be 20 odd percent. Yeah. Um, it's hard, hard to conceptualize it. You know, and, and uh, and right now, there's a, there's, there's the uh, these, uh, supplementary employment benefits. I think run out in July. What happens if they're extended for three or six months into the election? I mean, I don't. A lot of people aren't coming back to work because they are not being paid to come back to work. It's all rather a it's all rather a mess, Vikram. Yeah, I mean the. Uh... 
I think a mess characterizes it fairly well. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a recent working paper that I read um, published by some scholars at the University of Chicago. Uh, it was also on the NBER website, um, but it suggested that up to 42% of the job losses that have, you know, the layoffs that have taken place so far will be permanent. Um, what is the long run implication? Is this a reallocation? Is this just a massive readjustment that needs to take place? Or are we heading towards universal basic income schemes? Uh, I, I Needless to say, it goes without saying, I have no idea. Having said that, I should say nothing. However, Vikram, because you've asked, I will speculate. And what I see in, the, in these various things, however well-intended, PPE, supplemental this and that, uh, is, uh, is the, uh, the virtual adaptation of Bernie's program. Mm -hmm. right? We have, uh, not only is the Fed omnipresent, but the state is becoming omnipresent. And um, you know, we've looked to Governor Cuomo, for example, if you're a resident of New York State. Governor, tell us, when may we return to life as normal? Well, he says, we are going to think about that. We have some criteria. We'll let you know. And what has struck me is how submissive on balance the American public has been at this. And I, I think that uh, one of the shadows that this pandemic and especially the, the lockdown response has been just is the shadow of a very, very strong dose of statism becoming an integral part of, the, of a bipartisan program. I don't see much pushback from Republicans and some against the latest $3 trillion proposal from Democrats. But there is uh, uh, New Hampshire license plate said, live free or die? No, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's not the program. We are, no dying. we are living free when they, when they say it's okay. <laughs> That's the program. So, uh, so it sounds like, <laughs> sorry, Jim, you, you cut out there for a second. Are you, are you glad you asked that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like anyway, it sounds like you're in agreement then with uh, uh, Mr. Musk uh, of California, who believes these uh, government uh, restrictions are uh, sort of not free. I, I am, and I think that everyone uh, should read Holman Jenkins of Wall Street Journal. He's been writing for, for months on all manner of permutations and combinations of this question of lockdown versus getting back to it, and uh, he's a very intelligent man who's giving a very intelligent treatment of all this. He had a column the other day about, uh, um, uh, that Elon Musk is the new CLU. Yeah. Bears rereading. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm not with Elon on everything, <laughs> but I am with him on this. All right, there you go. Uh, so Jim, what about the idea of a debt jubilee? You know, we got too much, too much debt. We, it's it's going to be mountainous, hard to get out of. We don't know. It's unfair from a intergenerational equity perspective. Uh, just get rid of it. I think that you could run for office in it and you would, not, you would win a not insubstantial number of votes. And I think that ideas like this, which had seemed uh, so fanciful only like uh, 20 minutes ago, these ideas... We're going to catch on, and I think that the if you were handicapping the debt jubilee idea, you would take it much seriously now than you would debt anywhere. Relating to the debt jubilee question, Jim, there's a question here saying, um, do you think a, uh, a specifically the Chinese holdings of U.S. debt would be possibly used as compensation for their inadequacy of informing us? Uh, relating to the coronavirus risks. Is that a possible? Nah. I, I, I guess, but I, um, I think the, uh, the specter of the Chinese debt, whether as a hammer over the head of Uncle Sam or as a weapon that we wield to them, against them, I think, well, I, I, how much do they owe? How many 
how many jacks I've lost track. The number of trillions of debt, of the dollars of treasury that the, the Chinese own are, are beginning to be very close to the number that we emit every week from the treasury department. It's becoming a smaller and smaller fraction of what matters. So I, I think that I, I certainly um, uh, uh, am anxious about the possibility for conflict between China and the United States, but I think that uh, the debt is not going to play that big a part in developing geopolitical streams. Gotcha. Um, there's a question here. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to attack this or just pass, but your guesses on the elections uh, outcomes? I am rooting against uh, both of them. You're against both of the um, However, I said I'm, I'm rooting against uh, both parties. Um, but um, I, okay, so I, sh I should, this question deserves a serious answer. Now, I, uh, four years ago, I confess to you and the entire millions of webcast viewers that I was on CNBC, this is not a secret, I was on CNBC that very election that Tuesday morning. I said, I'm voting for Donald Trump as a short sale of Hillary Clinton. Not that I expect great things from Donald Trump. In fact, we at Grants um, have uh, written against Donald Trump as a businessman. But I said that, that uh, we have Mike Pence as a backup and I'll take Trump over Hillary. So it's always the, it's one always votes in my experience against someone rather than for someone. So I look at this election and I say, well, I think that the lesser of the evils as I see them is in fact the incumbent. So I am prepared to vote for this guy. Mm. Now, I think that the chances of him winning are rather better than the market is allowing. I think that Trump is it's his to lose. And I say this because uh, as a journalist, somebody asked me for an opinion. Do I know? No. Sure. But um, I dread... I dread the resurrection of the liberal program, especially with respect to speech. The idea that one must walk on eggshells, whether on campus or in the press, without saying certain things, to me is repugnant. And I think that uh, uh, that had gotten in, that the, uh, the era of speech campus would have been closed. I, I, I think that the, the cultural baggage the left carries with it with respect to speech is one of the clear and present dangers to a free society. But this is very, really far from interest rates, Vikram. Sure, sure. Well, it was a question and I figured I would ask it. Uh, so Jim, we're, we're running out of time here. And uh, as I promised you, we would wrap up Thank here God. in the hour. But one last question, which I think has come up and is on my list. Um, Given many of us are at home uh, or staying fairly constrained in our movements, uh, and as you indicated, uh, Mr. Bezos is able to deliver us uh, wonderful uh, goods uh, and possibly even reading material, what books would you recommend? Uh, are there any, of course, besides the lovely... I am glad to ask that question. I would recommend the entire Vikram Uvra, starting with Boom and Bust, one, Bustology one, and then segueing to two that blend it forward. Yeah. Um, so you, the question is about, is, is about reading material? Yes. So if you is had it, one book to recommend, what would you All right. This comes off the top of my head. How about a, a collection, any collection of essays of George Orwell? If you want clarity of prose and depth of intelligence, uh, uh, it's just a marvel to read his stuff. I was just, I had, I had one of his books by my bedside. It was, it was wartime broadcast on BBC. But he, there, there are many collections of his, I'm not talking about his novels now, I'm talking about the collection of his, uh, of his, uh, of his, uh, of his essays, and I think they're a wonderful thing, a companion for a difficult time. I mean, right. but, and, and by the way, every time it's difficult except in retrospect, right? Mm -hmm. Every time it's difficult except in retrospect. So uh, this too, Vikram, shall pass. Yep. Well, let's hope for it. So, Jim, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for uh, for your time. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your support on uh, the stuff I've been working on. I've enjoyed all of our conversations. This was no exception. Uh, and uh, again, thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh,
you know, we will have another webinar probably uh, next week. Uh, if you're not on my mailing list, please feel free to join it. Uh, you can find how to join the mailing list, subscribe, information about my book and past webinars all at www.mansharamani.com. So with that, uh, thank you everyone for joining. And again, Jim, thank you very much. Oh, you're entirely welcome, Dipper. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Mantramani's website at www.mansharamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.